It's the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. That's me. It was a tumultuous time in the news this week and probably the most interesting thing. Sure, I know the Chauvin trial and the retrial and all sorts of things. We'll get to that in a second. But Bill and Melinda Gates announced their divorce. And then the subsequent thing was they announced they did not have a prenuptial agreement. Chris Rock said, everybody needs a prenup. And he's absolutely right, especially when billions are at stake. But apparently, so they're so busy giving it away to everyone else and making sure that people get mRNA shots in themselves uh, throughout the world and polio vaccines and all sorts of things that perhaps, just perhaps, they have enough to live for the rest of their lives. They are what was it that Gwyneth Paltrow called it? Uh, conscious uncoupling? Yeah, that's what they're doing. So I just got done with a story for PJ Media that, here, I've got right here. See? Got right here. No, you can't see because it's just an audio podcast. But the defense attorney for Derek Chauvin, who is accused, in fact, indeed, convicted of killing George Floyd in Minneapolis on May 25th in 2020, he's now asked for a new trial. And he has every reason to ask for a new trial. And if you doubt me, I would suggest that you take a listen to one of my previous podcasts with Andrew Bronca of uh, Legal Insurrection and go over the reasons why. He listed many, many reasons there, but uh, we don't have to go to his list at the moment, although it would be, I believe, instructive. But indeed, all we have to do is go to the list of things that his attorney, Eric Nelson, Chauvin's attorney, put down in writing. And I wrote a list for PJ Media, and it's called Eight Righteous Reasons Why Derek Chauvin Deserves a New Trial and That Juror's Shirt is only one of them. Now, the juror's shirt to which I refer is juror number 52. He comes with a name, actually, even though the jurors during the trial did not call each other by name. They called each other by number to protect each other. But this guy sort of outed himself. His name is Brandon Mitchell. And Brandon Mitchell, Mr. Juror number 52, was seen on social media wearing a George Floyd Derek Chauvin shirt, which uh, said, get your knees off of my neck. And he wore it to a Washington, D.C. rally on the anniversary of the March on Washington. Now, you might think that was fairly benign. I don't think I would, but you might. But until you find out what else happened at the Washington March on August 20, was it 28th or 25th? Last August. During the Summer of Love, as we've all come to know and love it, during the riots, the George Floyd riots. So Brandon uh, went to the march in Washington, D.C. last summer wearing this shirt, which depicted a the photograph of Derek Chauvin with his knee on George Floyd's neck. And he wore it to the march 
to watch speakers about police brutality, including the brother and sister of George Floyd. Now, ordinarily, you'd think, well, it's a free country, doggone it. You should be able to do that. And indeed, he should be able to do that. But not if you said you had never gone to any protests, mar- protest march having to do with either George Floyd or police brutality, in which case both of those things qualified. He lied on his juror questionnaire. That's perjury. And it's wrong. And it's unethical. And it goes a long way, I believe, of explaining why this jury was able to come to a decision in pretty much less than one day, only 10 hours or less than that. It was nothing short of jury nullification when it was an incredibly complex case. But what they did was, they, eh, we're going to throw the book at them. Eh, 10 hours? Eh, okay, at least they'll sort of think we paid some attention to what was going on in the trial. So let's just guilty, guilty, guilty to, quote, Maxine Waters, who came to town the weekend while the jurors were still out and about and not sequestered, saying that, If they did not vote, in her words, quote, guilty, 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 she would order those people back on the streets to make more mayhem. And if you think I'm joking, let's listen to her. But I am very hopeful and I hope uh, that we're going to get a verdict that is say guilty, guilty, guilty. And if we don't, we we cannot go away. And not just manslaughter, right? I mean... Oh, no, not manslaughter. No, no, no. This is, this is guilty for murder. I don't know whether it's in the first degree, but as far as I'm concerned, it's first degree. It's coming from what happens if we do not get, get what you just told? What should the people do? What should protesters on the street do? I didn't hear you. What happens... What should protesters do? Well, we, we got to stay on the street. Uh, and we've got to get more active. We've got to get more confrontational. We've got to make sure that they th- they know that we mean business. Two National Guardsmen were shot at after she said this. The other issue in the George Floyd trial, not his, but Derek Chauvin's trial, was the change of venue. And the trial court judge, Peter Cahill, though asked, refused to change the location of the trial from Minneapolis, the scene of the riots, the protests, the looting and the arsons. Remember the third precinct that went and the attack on the courthouse as well. It also happened there in in Portland. So the judge reasoned that, well, all Minnesotans had heard about and watched the Chauvin-George Floyd video, so why not just stay here? I mean, after all, if you're going to have an unfair trial, you might as well have it in the most unfair place and not really inconvenience too many people. And basically, I mean, I'm overstating it, oversimplifying what the judge said about that, but that's basically it. Now, the third thing was for rationale, the description of things that the defense attorney said, judge, you have got to grant a new trial. Come on, man. And he did this. He said publicity and intimidation of witnesses. And indeed, that happened. And it was in the news. I mean, a bloody pig's head on the front porch of what the Antifa Stannies thought was a defense attorney witness? Come on. Having to walk through literally riots to get to the courthouse and protests and a gauntlet of security? 
This works into the whole change of venue thing as well. Publicity and intimidation. Well, you're likely to get less publicity and less intimidation were you to have a trial, maybe not in downtown Minneapolis. Oh, just a thought. In the words of the motion, such publicity included post-testimony, but pre-deliberation intimidation of the defense experts' witnesses from which the jury was not insulated. Not only did such acts escalate the potential for prejudice in these proceedings, they may result in a far-reaching chilling effect on the defendant's ability to procure, procure, she tried to say, expert witnesses, especially in high-profile cases such as, oh, you know, Mr. Chauvin's co-defendants to testify on their behalf. You know, just a thought. The publicity here, the defense attorney wrote, was so pervasive and so prejudicial before and during this trial that it amounted to a structural defect in the proceedings. You don't say. Number four of the eight reasons, juror sequestration. And I think it's obvious why that's an important thing. The only thing sequestered, I write, was Judge Cahill's powers of observation. Cahill apparently wasn't up to speed on these, you know, newfangled things called smartphones that feed users endless notifications about stories of all kinds. Jurors were told not to read the papers and watch the news on the TV, but never were told to put away their smartphones until the jury deliberations started. This was noted multiple times during the trial by the defense attorney just trying to make a note. Hey, I'm coming back to this, Judge. You know I'm going to ask for a retrial based on this information. And he did. But that wasn't the half of it. Every single day of the three-week-long trial, the jurors got a fresh reminder, I write, of what was at stake by having to walk through a gauntlet of security to keep out rioters. School was canceled. Riots broke out in the nearby Brooklyn Center, where two of the jurors lived. One was dismissed. One was an alternate who had been blocked by protesters in her neighborhood. Said she to a news outlet in the Minneapolis area, I did not want to go through rioting and destruction again, and I was concerned about people coming to my house if they were not happy with the verdict. Well, you don't say, really. (laughs) The judge gave the jury a three-day weekend leading up to the deliberations to give them a last free period to fully appreciate the complexity of the case. Three days to do that. Three days. Three-week trial, three days to really think about the complexity of the, tr- of the case, which it was. It, it was. And it was during that weekend that Maxine Waters came to town. Hey, play Maxine again, Kenny. But I am very hopeful, and I hope uh, that we're going to get a verdict that to say guilty, guilty, guilty. And if we don't, we, got, we cannot go away. And not just manslaughter, right? I mean... Oh, no, not manslaughter. No, no, no. This is, this is guilty for murder. I don't know whether it's in the first degree, but as far as I'm concerned, it's first degree. It's coming from what happens if we do not get, get what you just told? What should the people do? What should protesters on the street do? I didn't hear you. What happens? What should protesters do? Well, we, we got to stay on the street. Uh, and we've got to get more active. We've got to get more confrontational. We've got to make sure that they they know that we need business. Yeah, the case was uh, so 
complex. It took jurors less than 10 hours to find him guilty. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Quoting Maxine, guilty, guilty, guilty. Prosecutorial misconduct. And this is something Andrew Bronca brought up consistently when we spoke about the trial and in his writings over at Legal Insurrection and the Law of Self-Defense. And the prosecutors were, of course, hand-selected by Keith, I love Antifa Ellison, the attorney general who is that victory lap they took after the trial, that after the uh, verdict. It was so incredibly unseemly. It was it's such an important case. And they botched it so badly by just front loading all of these prosecutors who, by the way, routinely carried out prosecutorial misconduct. It was just unbelievable. Now, I didn't know until Andrew Bronca schooled me on this, but in the final, uh, in the closing arguments, in the rebuttal phase, you can't call in a criminal trial the defense attorney. You can't call him a liar. The defense can say, hey, those guys shaded the truth over on the prosecution, which obviously they did. And... um, but you can't do that to the the defense because they've got one bite at the apple and you're getting the last word. And you can't do that because they have no rebuttal of the rebuttal. And during Jerry Blackwell's rebuttal arguments in the trial, it got to the point where you, you generally do not object during closing arguments. It's done, and very rarely, which is why it was uh, such an anomaly. Okay, so the prosecutorial misconduct was so egregious that not only was it objected to by the defense attorney, Eric Nelson, but also by the judge who admonished Jerry Baby to stop it. You can't do that. Knock it off. I think they even had a sidebar. Could be wrong. Oh, which brings us to another appealable offense and something on which Eric Nelson wants to get a new trial. And that was, you know, those sidebars they had during the the trial, all of those, the judge never preserved the communications between the jury or correction, the judge and the attorneys did not preserve the discussions by the judge and the attorneys. Why? Well, uh, probably because uh, it would be too easy to come back at the judge and say, see, your thinking on this particular ruling was wrong, and I'm going to appeal based on that. So that became itself an appealable offense. I, I, I'm just guessing, but I'm pretty sure that's a pretty, pretty good guess. Well, it turns out you can't call the defense attorney a liar and then still do it after the judge tells you not to, whereupon Eric Nelson asked for a mistrial and, of course, was not given one. But beyond that, remember Andrew Bronca, go listen to that other uh, conversation we had a couple episodes ago, and it, it was really fascinating. The other prosecutorial misconduct that at least I believe was going on was the in the document dumping by the 14 attorneys on the part of 
the prosecution, these hand-picked attorneys from all these white shoe law firms, many of whom, if not all of them, were working for free, pro bono, from their firms on loan for this case because it was such a politically charged case. We won! We won! We won! What did we win? Uh, Invoking Chris Rock again. And 14 attorneys, untold staff help, limitless budget, Brought to you by the state of Minnesota. And they played dirty, way dirty. For example, 50,000 plus pages of documents just dumped during the trial on the one defense attorney. I 14 attorneys on the prosecutor side, one defense attorney on the other side. Sure, I suppose if Derek Chauvin had made more money working security the the same time that George Floyd did, or at least the same place, that um, he might have been able to afford another attorney, you know, make it two. But he didn't. And the next thing is, the judge did not make an eyewitness and a guy who may in fact have uh, caused George Floyd's death to testify. He took the fifth. His attorney came into court and insisted that he take the fifth because you know what? The drugs he sold or gave or procured for George Floyd that day, the several pills he had inside his system and those that they found in the police cruiser, George Floyd's borrowed Mercedes SUV, and in his mouth might have killed him. You you think you you think that they might want to, oh, I don't know, um, uh, have that guy on the stand to question him? Even in a very, very simple way impo- with enforcements imposed by the judge to just get basic information without selling his Fifth Amendment rights down the river. The judge said no. Maurice, Law, uh, Maurice um, Hall uh, was also one of those guys. You heard that, I think it's the last episode. And it was the the woman's voice, the male, the male's voice, and it was George Floyd's ex-girlfriend and Maurice Hall, his drug dealer, who were talking about how George was fighting back on the cops and how he just needed to go to just go with them, because right now, if you keep fighting back, you're gonna go to jail. <sighs> Jury instructions. Eric Nelson says in his motion that the judge in the case failed to accurately reflect the law with respect to unintentional second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and unauthorized use of force. He didn't delineate how it was different for a police officer, I guess. And so what the jury apparently did was they, well, let's face it, they really didn't spend a lot of time on the issues, uh, clearly. Um, But what they did... They just took a meat cleaver to what required a scalpel and said he's guilty on all of them, which in by my lights didn't make a lot of sense uh, because as explained, it should have been explained, the third degree um, murder charge applies to groups and and it's a felony murder thing. And it applies to groups and it didn't apply here. And in fact, it was in dispute by the trial court judge, Judge Cahill, who had previously ruled it out of bounds and basically said, you guys overcharged this particular case. And so the prosecutors, you know, those guys took it to court and said, no, we're appealing it. The appeals court said, no, you have to put it back in. 
as one of the charges. And it's still on appeal to the state Supreme Court. But they went on with the trial with that particular count. And he was found guilty on that particular count, which common sense tells you didn't even apply. Uh, I would love to hear Bronca on a little bit more about that. And I know he and Barnes or Viva and Fry, Viva Fry and Barnes uh, have talked a little bit about this. And it's just it's just not a little bit. They've talked a lot about it. Okay. the other thing was the crying and cumulative nature of the prosecution's case. And as you note, Bronca had told us that you cannot have, for example, if something happened in a stadium and 45,000 people were there and saw it, you don't bring 45,000 people into court. You bring a sampling. But instead, the prosecution brought in many of the witnesses to the George Floyd murder. Many, including like our MMA guy, testified incorrectly about physical details of what happened to George Floyd. And indeed, one of those really dumb mistakes that the MMA guy who came to court and testified like he was some sort of expert was wrong and and noted by one of the uh, the alternate juror who was you know, never got a chance to be on the the uh, jury because she was an alternate. And so she was kind of cut loose. She said, oh, yes, that made an impact on me. I was like, what? How? It made no sense. OK, um, the other thing is, is that most of the people who came the first week were those people in the crowd, uh, among them that MMA guy who, who watched and uh, said uh, while on the stand that they what they saw, you know, and then they all cried, all of them. If one didn't, did the MMA guy cry? He might have been the only one. And all of the witnesses were asked by the female prosecutor, who I never saw again after that, how, how does that make you feel? I literally was laughing out loud. How does it make you feel over and over each witness over and how does that make you feel oh and then they'd all cry here's some kleenex here here you go this is a terrible story of course it was a terrible story of course but the thing is is that it's cumulative and as andrew has pointed out you can't flood the zone like that with with information like that you think oh it's right oh everybody must have thought this no not necessarily obviously not not the police who are there. And so it's prejudicial and sets a tempo or tenor for the jury. Oh, of course, everything's, uh, you know, it's like everybody, you think more is better. You think, oh, God, more hot fudge sauce on that ice cream, which, of course, is true. You think, uh, hey, I'll have more tapatio on my nachos. Or you'll say, oh, I don't know, how, how about more syrup on my pancakes? But you and I both know that at some point, it becomes too much. It becomes cumulative. It's way too much. You will regret it. It has subsumed every other taste there in my plate. And so it is in court. And that's what happened, literally happened. And and it happened with the medical people. So this is all attested to in the motion to uh, get a new trial 
for Derek Chauvin. And so the remember now the the cumulative effect on the medical people was was basically something like this. The new tranche of medical witnesses said that, oh, you know, Floyd's oversized heart, his near full blockages of his arteries going and coming from his heart and uh, years of drug abuse. Oh, yeah, COVID. Sure. Why would that have anything to to do with having enough oxygen? I don't even know what you're talking about. That's uh, they, they said, oh, that had nothing to do with George Floyd's death. Oh, sure. He was high on fentanyl. People do any kind, many different kinds of things on fentanyl, like they drive cars. And the same guy who said, oh, yeah, they drive cars. And uh, the medical experts all agreed that, oh, you know, it, it was really the, the knee on the neck that killed him. And then when the defense attorney played video that said that showed it wasn't a knee on the neck, all the remember, it used to be eight minutes and 46 seconds. And then during the trial, it became nine minutes and 29 seconds. And the defense attorney was going, no, it's this whole thing. This started 16 minutes before that. And George Floyd was saying he couldn't breathe when the cops were trying to put him in the back of the car. So come on. And the Oscar goes to over and over and over again. The medical experts said, Uh oh, yeah. No, it was only that knee. Only the knee on the back. Uh, Okay, so it was on the shoulder. No, it was on the neck. It was on the back. It was on the shoulder. It was on the neck. It was on the shoulder. It was on the back. Oh, no, it was the prone position that killed him. They never actually put forward a, a tangible reason as to why George Floyd died. Only that their medical experts, who never saw the body, by the way, said uh, it was the knee. Okay, you know what the one guy, the one guy who actually did come and testify as well, the one voice that said, no, the guy died of a drug overdose, all things being equal. This is before, of course, I knew he got in a scrape with the cops, but I would have ruled it a, a a drug overdose. That guy, that guy got drowned out by all the crack, I'm sorry, crackpots who said, well, you know, 90% of the people who smoke don't have any problem whatsoever. I don't know what you're talking about with fentanyl. fentanyl people drive and, and, and are on fentanyl. I mean, I, come on. Oh, of course, his testimony was drowned out. And that was planned. The judge allowed it. The jury bought it. And there were two other things that Nelson Uh, put in his uh, motion for a new trial. And that's these. Well, I mentioned one, the sidebar preservation of the conversation, that, and the fact that prosecutors were allowed to ask leading questions of their witnesses in direct testimony. And that's, I mean, even I knew that you can't do that. That's a legal bozo no-no. No, you can't. And I'll tell you something else. You know, it's an even bigger travesty, should this happen, a bigger travesty than that trial that took place, the clown show, the star chamber, if he doesn't get a new trial. And you may think the guy is as guilty as sin. And you may think justice was served because he was found guilty. And of course, we needed him to be found guilty. But you can't call what happened in that courtroom justice. It was just us. That's what happened there. Derek Chauvin needs a 
new trial. Will he get one? He should. He should. Coming up, it's the next episode of Antifa versus Mike Strickland. It might be the last episode. What happens after this is anyone's guess. Get out of here, racist. I'm not a racist. Dude, don't get, get out of here. Don't put your hands on me. Get out of here. Don't put your hands on me. Get out of here, racist. Don't put your hands on me. Do not put your hands on me. Do not put your hands on me. Put your hands on me. Don't do it. Don't do it. Before the nightly riots we've seen in the news, there was one case. The first case, the case of Mike Strickland. Now at noon, another court appearance today for the man caught on camera waving a gun at protesters in Portland last month, and now he faces a lot more charges. Michael Strickland faces 21 counts connected to that incident. He was a journalist who was beaten by Antifa and Black Lives Matter protesters, and he defended himself from the mob with his legal gun, and not a shot was fired. Our position hasn't changed, our client's position has not changed, that he is not guilty, that he was using the um, weapon to protect himself, and he was doing so within his rights. The only one hurt that day in July of 2016 was Mike Strickland, and the only one punished was Mike Strickland, the victim. I'm of the firm and steadfast opinion that when they come for Strickland's rights, they're coming for mine next. See, Antifa says it's anti-fascist, but Antifa is really anti-First Amendment. It's going back to the street violence of the 1920s and 1930s as a technique and a tactic. And the court system doesn't realize it's happening. This is the story of Mike Strickland. After Mike Strickland laughing at liberals was convicted of all 21 counts against him, 10 counts of unlawful use of a weapon, 10 counts of menacing, and one count of second-degree disorderly conduct, Judge Ryan sentenced him. Not to the possible 50 years in prison, which the grossly overcharged case with its phantom victims could have netted him, but instead for 40 days in jail to be served on the weekends. He'd get credit for the 11 days he'd already served. The prosecution had publicly stated that Strickland was a white nationalist. He was dangerous and evil, a crazy man with a gun, thus poisoning Strickland's reputation and the jury pool. And they'd said it without evidence, without factual basis. But now they said that for his crimes against humanity, Strickland would be sent to weekend jail for 29 more days? 
Really? It doesn't sound like the judge bought that line, but the public did. Strickland was meant to be an example to political conservatives who made the left's pet protesters, that's Antifa and BLM, look silly. People were literally laughing at liberals. Strickland was also put on probation for three years and was ordered to do 240 hours of community service. He could not possess guns, could not cover news events. His Second and First Amendment rights were vaporized. And after ordering him not to do his job, the court told Strickland he had to pay $3,100 in fines and had to check in with his probation officer. Here's his probation officer asking Strickland to take down a video from his Laughing at Liberals YouTube channel because it features the man who conspired to and carried out the attack on him, Ben Carenza. Michael, the the video needs to stop. And if you can't get your mind to stop, let me know and we could get you some help. Okay. Um, I'll also say that this is the first time that I've heard about it from any um, legal entity regarding some of the videos I've posted. Um, and secondly, well, I will cite pr- Michael is because you're you're on supervision now, mm-hmm. and you have listed victims. Mm-hmm. But uh, I will also say that the things in the video it, are 100% factual. I'm not making anything up. I'm not telling lies about anything. It's 100% factual. Okay. And well, no, nor am I, I telling people to I contact him. Prepared to, to back yourself up because it sounds like it's it's going to be moving forward. Okay. So my my best advice and you know my recommendation to you is that you just stop. Okay. And go about things tactfully. And if you think somebody's a threat to society, you bring it up with you know law enforcement. Okay. And that's doing your part. Not making videos that could be you know construed several different ways. Okay. So I will be in touch in the near future once I um, connect with Multnomah County DA's office, who obviously has a stake in this at this point. Okay. All right, Michael. Now, can I hear it from you? Can you stop? I'm not sure that I can... um... Especially naming your victims, calling out your victims, and uh, putting out videos for your your victim to see. I'm not sure I can do that. Okay, well, I will let the DA's office and the courts know that you're unable to stop or unwilling. So is is it unable or unwilling? Right now, it would be unwilling because I think it's, again, I think it's important that the public be informed... Okay, about so how dangerous PO, this guy uh, is. As your PO, until we get specific approval for you to continue, I'm directing you to stop. Okay, I will follow your direction there, yes. But you will be hearing from one of my attorneys because this is a violation of uh, prior restraint. All right, Michael. I will be in touch in the near future. Okay, thank you. And who made the request to the probation officer to take down the video? Why, none other than Ben Carenza. Only one of two named victims of Strickland. Yes, it was a farce. The political prosecution and its outrageous aftermath angered Strickland's friends, supporters, and many civil libertarians. Except the American Civil Liberties Union, the Second Amendment Foundation, and the oldest civil rights organization in the country, the NRA. All of them refused to help him. It's something people familiar with Strickland's case won't soon forgive or forget. 
but supporters urged him to fight on. This was too big an issue to let lie, they said. The Oregon Firearms Federation still stood by Strickland and put out another special appeal to its membership to help out with his defense fund. Before the trial, the group's leader, Kevin Starrett, told me Strickland was not expected to get a fair shake. After all, Strickland had been seriously injured and robbed by a man the year before, and the same DA did not bring charges, even though it was on videotape. That experience informed everything Strickland did on July 7th, 2016. Here's a guy who was assaulted, injured, and robbed on camera in Multnomah County by someone who was known to all of us. And the same district attorney refused to prosecute a person who did committed these crimes and severely injured Michael on camera. Now, what kind of great investigative work is required to get, an, to get a conviction under those circumstances, and Underhill didn't even try. So given that reality, why would Michael think he, was, he had any choice? I mean, he certainly couldn't rely on the system or law enforcement to protect him because it was ob- the whole thing's obviously rigged. Starrett said he could not imagine a person in a better position to use self-defense than Strickland that day in 2016. He was willing to keep fighting, for Strickland. But there was the matter of finding a person to quarterback Strickland's appeal. He needed to hire someone who truly understood what his trial attorneys didn't fully appreciate at the time, that this was bigger than a Second Amendment case, that the ramifications for future self-defense cases in the state of Oregon rode on this case, that this was an eminently political case, that the case was closely observed by Oregon's political class, some of whom were Antifa, and that his trial attorneys should have put on a more vigorous defense for a change of venue, which had been denied by the judge. It was a First Amendment case being considered by people who didn't understand the milieu of Antifa and BLM, those so-called protesters. It's the beginning of a long battle. That's Robert Barnes, a well-known civil rights attorney, who took the Strickland case. The judges still haven't got what's happening. The judiciary is a branch. The judicial branch hasn't figured out, other than Brett Kavanaugh experiencing it personally, the rest of the judicial branch hasn't, hasn't deduced what's happening in the public arena, what's happening at these protests, what's happening at these social gatherings, what's happening in these tactics, these mob tactics that are being utilized. It's the reason why the press is so nervous about the use of the word mob is because of how accurate it depicts their tactics and techniques over the past two years. Tactics they experimented a little bit with Occupy Wall Street, but that went sideways because every Everybody was busy assaulting everybody inside. So that, you know, but they're going, returning back to those roots. And those are dangerous roots for the, uh, for political expression. It's going back to the street violence of the 1920s and 1930s as a technique and a tactic. And the court system doesn't realize it's happening. The politically savvy operator walked into a case that had not been tried and prepared with an appeal in mind. And why would they do that? In the days before Strickland's case, the same attorneys had won a case in Multnomah County for a man who did much the same as Strickland, but just against three attackers, not a mob. Homeless guys who violently threatened the man sitting with his girlfriend near the same place where Strickland pulled his gun on the mob. But that guy wasn't an outspoken, right-leaning videographer like Strickland. 
The court ruled in that previous case that the man was justified in pulling his gun to ward off the attack. These are among the reasons why Strickland and his trial attorneys made the pivotal decision to opt for a bench trial, one in front of a judge, after losing a motion for change of venue. But trial attorneys didn't preserve a key document. Here's Barnes. So what happened in the lower court proceedings is the uh, Michael's trial court lawyer wasn't quite accustomed to political cases. And because of that, didn't know to preserve and protect things that aren't normally preserved and protected in your typical criminal trial. So in most criminal trials, because it's expensive, the lawyer doesn't order transcripts for all of the proceedings. And here he didn't order the voir dire transcripts. But what was put on the record was that over half of the jurors had a bias based on completely false information about Michael. He'd been subject to a libel campaign, a defamation campaign by parts of the Portland press and public arena, by the prosecutor themselves, who made misrepresentations, later acknowledged that her statements were inaccurate, not true, that those statements ended up infiltrating into the jury. And the significance from a venue perspective is it presents a novel question for the state of Oregon, which is most presumed prejudice cases are where uh, have to reach a ridiculous standard. So the Supreme Court even said Houston could try Jeff Skilling in the Enron case when a lot of lawyers and public observers thought that was rather ludicrous given how, how intense the emotions were in Houston about Enron. But what's different here than there is there weren't deliberately false statements, false confessions, false things being reported about Mr. Skilling. It was just the accusations that were in the indictment. So whereas here, there were completely false statements made, false statements made by the prosecutor themselves that would have undue influence with the jury pool. It did have an undue influence with the jury pool. And there was some evidence of that, even if the evidence wasn't preserved and protected. None of the trial transcripts of Wardeer were available because they hadn't been preserved. So the answers to the questions in jury selection by the obviously prejudiced jury pool filled with activists, at least one of whom attended the very protested issue, anti-gunners and Portlanders who had no idea of the dangers Antifa posed were not available to bring up into court and in future motions for change of venue, mistrial and an appeal. The prosecutor came out and tied him, tied Michael into Orlando, tied Michael into making statements about racial beliefs that he never made. Uh, And in particular, it was the combination of the two, tying it into the Orlando shooting incident and tying it into uh, racial beliefs that would tear. The whole goal was this wasn't some little guy trying to uh, videotape people out in the streets who's being assaulted repeatedly and trying to briefly defend himself. Uh, This is a dangerous right winger who's joining some secret militia who's part of the kind of other scary violent events that have frightened us. So it was it was meant to tap a milieu, political milieu that was completely false. And it was this whole case is predicated on a lie. It's predicated on the lie as to who was the aggressor, who was the violent person, who was posing the threat, who poses the long term threat, long term threat to the law, long term threat to the to the society at large. And it was all about pretending the black bloc was innocent and the black bloc were victims when, in fact, Michael was the victim. Barnes was forced to use the local newspaper, The Oregonian's sole story about the jury pool. Thankfully, a reporter sat through most of the voir dire process, took notes, and wrote about it. It was newsworthy because it was so one-sided. Only Judge Thomas Ryan would consider the evidence in the case that would be tried in one of the most liberal enclaves in the country. And we know what happened with that. Strickland's own statements recorded by police right after the event were ruled inadmissible. 
because the judge ruled they were hearsay. Strickland's team couldn't present evidence of why his actions were reasonable based on his experience that day and his previous experiences, including the case of the film documentarian who broke his arm in three places and robbed him, preventing Strickland from working for months. And who made up the mob? 80% of Strickland's phantom victims were never named in court. In fact, the indictment itself was deficient by traditional standards because it failed to identify who the victims were from the inception, failed to identify exactly what crime they were alleging here, because this is one of the only well, cases... Are you suggesting that a guy at the hoodie in the, in the, with the black backpack, that was insufficient evidence? Well, it, it, to... correct. And, and what they were doing is they were trying to stay very vague and very obscure as to how they were calling it a crime and who was harmed, because they really didn't want to say it was the black block that was harmed, because who would be sympathetic to them on the stand if they were exposed and their history was exposed. Here you had Michael who had no criminal history of any kind at all, whereas the supposed victims are people that have a long rap sheet. So the, the contrast was extraordinary. So this was a story that could only be told if the key evidence was excluded. If, a, if the, the only way the lie could be propagated and perpetuated is if Michael was not allowed to defend himself. And that's unfortunately what happened at the trial court level. And the Court of Appeals just has a natural deference to the trial court that we have to overcome overcome. Uh, and that's the obstacle for us. But the law and public policy compel the court to take a different action and remedy this wrong, or it's a wrong that will reoccur and be repeated against others. The judge ruled that what Strickland was actually feeling that day about why he believed he needed to pull his gun was not germane to his case of self-defense. What happens if you guys don't prevail? Then we go up to the Oregon Supreme Court. This is a good case for the Oregon Supreme Court. Now, the Oregon Supreme Court doesn't have to take the case. It's discretionary. But this case has achieved a certain degree of public attention. So there's going to be a public policy precedent that's set independent of the law. And the legal precedent is critical. They, they need to get this right. They're getting the rules of evidence at the trial court level in Oregon wrong. They're getting the rules about venue and the rules about how to make sure there's a fair jury wrong. They're getting rules about what they can do in terms of how they use probation to control someone's first Amendment behavior wrong. They're trying to, uh, and most importantly, the entire self-defense they've got wrong. So they, they're treating self-defense so that a person's personal life experience, personal perceptions, and personal history would have no bearing and no relevance. And in that context, that allows those with political power to prosecute whomever they want when somebody bad does something, tries to threaten or cause harm to someone good, and that person good just tries to defend themselves. Your ability to have a Second Amendment right to protect any of your other rights will be severely diminished if the court does not reverse this decision or clarify this area of law. And literally seconds after the last witness in the trial, an ambush witness, remember, by the prosecution, Ryan ruled Strickland was guilty of it all. On October 12, 2018, Barnes argued the appeal before the Oregon Appeals Court in Salem. After he argued the case, Barnes was asked what happened if Strickland lost his appeal. Well, this case is about someone who asserted their Second Amendment rights to protect their First Amendment rights. And the key is whether the Oregon court is going to recognize and respect a person's right of self-defense and consider their personal life experience and their personal history in dealing with a group that is as violent and as... Uh, 
uh, and as criminal as the black block is, the do, does someone's knowledge of who they are, does someone's knowledge of what they're about, does someone's knowledge of their past, does someone's own personal history, is that a factor to be considered in the self-defense? And so this case boils down to can you defend yourself? Can you assert your Second Amendment right against you to assert and protect your First Amendment rights? Uh, and will the state of Oregon recognize someone's personal life experience or will they reward the black block of uh, Portland again? Well, what did you think about the... Uh fact that the tri- the uh, middle justice uh, continued to sort of pick away at your arguments. Did you think there was any I think there the, there? There's an instinctive tendency of the appellate courts to affirm any trial court outcome. That happens about 80 to 90 percent of the time. So you're trying to overcome their presumption that what happened at the trial court was correct. And here you've had a political environment where if you're part of the political apparatus in Oregon, you're under major political pressure to excuse the conduct of the black bloc, to excuse the conduct of the Portland police authorities, to excuse the conduct of the Portland prosecutor, rather than meaningfully enforce self-defense rules, First Amendment rights, and Second Amendment rights. And so we were trying to force the issue back into the legal terrain, to sort of the high planes of what the law is, because that's what protects everybody and it needs to be equally applied. And it's, it's forcing them to face that when they don't always want to face that, when the easy political decision for them to make is to just affirm the case and not to overturn the police, not to overturn the prosecutor, not to overturn the judge, not to enhance and expand the protection of ordinary individuals against the black bloc at Portland. On the issue of hearsay, tell me, and, and, and um, state of mind, can sure. you explain what went on there? So two different things here. A self-defense is all about what you believe. And the only aspect that's considered what's called an objective standard is was your belief a reasonable belief? So if you believe something that nobody should believe, even if you really believed it, then that isn't self-defense. So if you believe something, like you believe someone's trying to harm you, that there's no reason whatsoever for you to believe that, you don't get to exercise self-defense. But it always starts with what you believe. What the trial court did here, the trial court said what you believe doesn't matter at all. All that matters is what a objectively reasonable person do what you did. And that's a very dangerous standard. That would effectively gut self-defense throughout the whole state of Oregon. So that's why, because you, you don't really have a self-defense if it's always what somebody objectively would have believed. Because they wouldn't be prosecuting you if the police authorities thought what you did was objectively reasonable. They're only prosecuting you because they believe that you shouldn't have done what you did. And the only person's defense is, hey, but I believed it, and my belief was a reasonable belief if you had my life experience, if you had my background, if you knew what I knew, if you perceived what I perceived. Anybody familiar in this protest space would know that uh, Michael's actions were, in fact, very tame compared to the actions of the people that were threatening him. Here the state acknowledged 20 to 30 members of the Black Bloc organized on that day, targeted him, three to four came out, were cussing at him, screaming at him, telling him to go out, and even after he flashed that he was armed multiple times, they still kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. The Black Bloc has the most violent history of any organization of political protest going on more than 25 years all around the world. So if you knew that context, you would know that his actions were perfectly reasonable and perfectly understandable. It, the trial court did not allow that context to come into evidence. And if that can't come into evidence, then the black bloc has free reign to do whatever they want to do. 
And that's the political and public consequence of this case. The precedent this case will set in the public arena, independent of the judicial arena, is is critical and is essential for people's rights all across the country, and definitely in Oregon, and particularly in Portland. Uh, so I believe Mike is victim zero of mm-hmm. BlackRock and yeah. Antifa in Portland. Do you think that the perceptions that uh, have changed from when this happened to today? I think in some circles it hasn't, and unfortunately other circles it hasn't. The people who still don't get it are, frankly, a lot of judges, a lot of prosecutors, and a lot of high-ranking political officials. So those are the people that increasing members of the public get it. So, like, for example, I think one reason why the left is shocked by the reaction to Kavanaugh by the, by the counter-reaction to their protest activities is people don't want to be associated with people who claw on the Supreme Court's doors. People don't want to be associated with people who stalk people in restaurants. People don't want to be associated with people who scream at people in elevators. Yet they think this is normal. They think this is regular. So you have you look at how the black bloc has reacted to this case. They're directing traffic on the streets in Portland. They're telling the old guy, he can go this way, he can go this way. And if he doesn't, they just assault his car, knowing there'll be no consequence whatsoever. Knowing instead, you'll get what the attorney general said in this case, which was that Michael being provocative was, the, it was an excuse to further limit and restrict his rights, to prevent him from asserting his Second Amendment rights and protection of his First Amendment rights, which is what this case is all about. So, um, so the, that part the court, it, to, to get to those issues, and for example, like the hearsay issue, Hearsay is a commonly misunderstood doctrine. So yeah. hearsay is just, if I want to prove something factual, I can't use somebody else's out-of-court statement to prove it. Now, what that factual is, is whether the car is white or not, or whether someone walked across the street at 3 p.m., or whether someone had a gun on them at a particular time. That's something factual. What is never hearsay is, here's what I thought. Here's what I believe. Here's what somebody else thought. Here's what somebody else believed. Here's what somebody else's motive was. Here's what somebody's state of mind was. That's a commonly misunderstood doc- idea is that that's hearsay. That's never hearsay. But that is a common misunderstanding by judges all across the country. It's one of those areas that needs clarity uh, in, in a more assertive manner, either from the appellate courts or maybe in this case the Oregon Supreme Court. Months later, the Oregon appeals court turned down the appeal. And agonizing months after that, the Oregon Supreme Court refused to take the case. Strickland was the canary in the coal mine, the patient zero of Antifa's and BLM's violent revolution into the takedown of freedom of speech in the public square and on social media, the de facto public squares of the United States. Before firebombings to stop conservative speakers on campus, Before Donald Trump was removed from Twitter and Facebook for his political beliefs, Barnes read the tea leaves and he saw more politically based censorship coming our way. The dissenting groups in China will be next. Other people will be next. So the, it will be an international uh, effort to censor and, and, and shame. And then the other aspect is the stalking behaviors and mob-like behaviors of which the black bloc is the front line. When you saw the media publicly defend Antifa, uh, then you knew just what the objective was and the agenda was. And Antifa has been walking. In the few cases where they've been prosecuted, they're being prosecuted in, in very liberal and left-wing jurisdictions, the effect of which has been that they walked. So right now, if you're in the black bloc, 
fuck, what do you think? I can harass somebody and get away with it. I can harass somebody and get them arrested if they try to defend themselves. Uh, and that's what they want. They want people to not defend themselves so that they feel terrified, so that they feel scared, so that they feel frightened, so that their behavior can be publicly and privately coerced. Um, and that's the danger and the threat. And that's why this case is much bigger than one person. But this battle would be just the beginning of a long, extended battle. The Whatever happens here, there'll be other courts to be dealing with and there'll be other uh, remedies to be sought. Uh, but the advantage is if this can happen to him here, it can happen to anyone anywhere, and it means nobody is safe. Uh, and that's why this case is so significant. So it's on to the U.S. Supreme Court. Barnes says it's a long shot, but he's asked the nation's highest court to consider the case. Maybe after multiple attacks in various cities, riots, arsons, tearing down statues in Minneapolis, Portland, Seattle, Kenosha, Atlanta, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, and multiple other places. After multiple assaults on the Capitol, homes of right-leaning TV hosts, and the attack on the Senate during Supreme Court confirmation hearings. After it all, will people finally have their eyes opened? Is it possible for Mike Strickland to get his rights back? Could he finally get his day in court, his fair shake in court? Maybe. Thank you for your support of the Adult in the Room podcast and for our special series on Antifa versus Mike Strickland. Please share this with your podcast and freedom-loving friends. And remember, you're the one keeping this podcast going. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Adult in the Room podcast. To keep the programs you like to listen to, please rate this podcast with a fantastic five stars on your Apple podcast app every time you listen. And give me a great review. Plus, of course, subscribe to the podcast. It makes a difference with the big tech algorithm and the big tech oligarchs. And it makes us easier to find. Please get in touch with me on all the big tech stuff. Yeah, we're still there. Using the names Victoria Taft or the Adult in the Room podcast on MeWe, Parlor, Minds, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to 1A Cast for imaging, editing, and production. The fantastic song is Gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for Antifa versus Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by Raps by RC. The Adult in the Room podcast is also a production of Flamingo Road Studios. Remember, head up, heart out, and strive to be the adult in the room. Till next time, mischief managed.